Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, June 23rd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the only Democratic candidate for governor in Mississippi is sharing his plans for economic improvements. Then, tomorrow marks one year since the Dobbs decision was handed down by the Supreme Court. Plus, psychiatric experts discuss how the first diagnosis of autism changed the medical field in Mississippi and beyond. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Democratic candidate for governor Brandon Presley is unveiling his plan to cut taxes in Mississippi if he's elected to office. Presley has served as the public service commissioner for the Northern District since 2008. He's also running unopposed in the Democratic primary this year for governor. Republican governor and incumbent Tate Reeves has outlined his intention to eliminate the state income tax and make it easier for businesses to move to the state. But Presley says he would focus on taxes that affect low-income households. That comes, number one, by eliminating the sales tax on groceries. We have the highest tax on food of any state in the United States of America, and we've got to get that eliminated. At a time in which Mississippians are struggling, we know that this cost is hurting folks. Uh, and particularly working families who are out there trying to make ends meet and meet that family budget, and cut the car tag fees in half. Mississippi has the seventh highest fees on car tags uh, of any state in this country, and that hits working families in their family budget extremely hard in Mississippi. And so priorities in my administration will be to find ways in which to cut taxes that help the most Mississippians. Foundationally, step one, in all tax cuts during my time as governor will be, how can we give a tax cut to the most people? If you're going to give tax breaks, it ought to be those that help the most people that are out there. That's who the taxpayers are, and those who obviously are the people we want to benefit. Presley says he also wants to help improve opportunities for students, workers, and employers. We've got to make sure that we invest in our workforce as we go forward to get Mississippi's economy moving again. We have got to uh, change the course of history that we see right now where taillights of Mississippi's young people are leaving in droves. We're helping to export all right in Mississippi. We're exporting our children. We're exporting our jobs. 
We're exporting our best and our brightest. And you don't have to look too far except the latest census data, which shows us as one of only three, three states in this country, only one of three states in this country that's losing population. That's a heck of a report card for Tate Reeves' 12 years in public office. His 12 years in public office have resulted in more people wanting to leave Mississippi than move to Mississippi. That's his record, and it's been a failed record. If we want to make sure Mississippi's economy picks up and moves forward, we've got to look at smart ways to invest and help small business owners. I want to say this. It is clear that our small business owners, like the business we're in here today, stick with our communities through pandemics, through economic recessions. They're here. They're hiring our local Mississippi citizens and giving jobs. They don't pack up and go to China. They don't pack up and go to Mexico. When sorry trade policies like NAFTA and other international trade deals are passed, they stick with us. Small businesses are the folks that go around, and when it's time to sponsor a little league baseball team, they sponsor the baseball team. Or they're the ones that sponsor the programs at the football games. And we have got to have a governor that is concerned about and understands those issues to help our small businesses. But the issues also are larger. As governor, as part of our plan on economic success, we want to collaborate with education institutions and businesses to provide training and scholarships for fields that are in high demand. Now, these are high demand fields. Right now, it could be plumbing, electrical, computer programming. I'm renovating a house right now, and I have had the hardest time finding a plumber to show up. And we know, folks in Mississippi know, that many of our blue-collar jobs, many of our jobs where... Um, traditionally, I don't think the governor or the legislature have looked at these as economic development because they can't get their picture in the paper when we crank out a job with somebody in the blue-collar industry. But those are jobs in which are turning over dollars in our economy. We need to train our workforce for high-demand fields where jobs are available now where kids will, in fact, stay in the state of Mississippi. Kids should not feel, children should not feel, I should say, children should not feel that their only option to make a good living is to get the heck out of the state of Mississippi. That is the problem we have today. So many young people feel like there is no future here. There is no future. And there is that issue exists because their governor is more concerned about how he can raise a campaign dollar than he is about how he can raise their quality of living. Republican Governor Tate Reeves says Mississippi should not expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. But Presley says it's a smart economic decision. 220,000 working people in Mississippi today are getting up, wiping a table at a Waffle House, changing oil at a service station, sacking groceries at a grocery store, and do not have health insurance. Not the fault of their employer. These are small business owners who are going to have a hard time keeping the doors open and at the same time being able to afford health insurance for their employees. Forty states in this country have decided to be economically smart, economically smart, and oh, by the way, first priority for me is to be smart when it comes to your compassion for citizens, but to be economically smart by expanding Medicaid. Mississippi is one of ten states left in this country that has not expanded Medicaid, and the only reason we're not doing it it's not because we're uh, somehow don't know the economic benefits of it. Tate Reeves said to Chancellor Dan Jones behind closed doors that he knew this was the right policy for the state of Mississippi, but it would hurt 
him politically. And that's what we've got out of Tate Reeves for the last 12 years. It's always about him. When given a choice between disaster recovery after a tornado or a campaign fundraiser in Alabama, he's going to always take care of himself. And the same issue exists in Medicaid expansion. 220,000 people in this state would have health insurance. We could create 16,000 health care jobs. You, any candidate for governor that talks about the economy and economic development in Mississippi and fails to open their mouth about Medicaid expansion is somebody that's not serious about economic development in Mississippi. They want to show up for a ribbon cutting and then go somewhere to a campaign fundraiser. The hard work, the grunt work, where the rubber meets the road in economic development are the different factors that we're talking about, whether it's supporting small business owners, expanding Medicaid, infrastructure. All of these play a part in an ing as ingredients for economic success. Expanding Medicaid has another effect on business owners, reducing absenteeism. One of the things as I talk to business owners all across the state, one of the things that worries them more is when their employees are out because they're sick. We need employees at the employment place, and we need them well while they're there. And one of the ways in which we help keep folks in the workplace is for them to have the health care that they need. If you're able to get preventative care, prescriptions, and treatment, you're more likely to not only get a job, but be able to keep the job and stay on the job. It is common sense. It's not political. It's not uh, election year promises. This is about doing the work to help workers have the type of care they need to stay on the job. A spokesperson for the Reeves campaign says in a statement, Democrat Brandon Presley is against eliminating the income tax because there is no other way to subsidize his massive spending agenda. All of his wild attacks are just maneuvers to distract from his liberal policies and far-left alliances like Gavin Newsom and Stacey Abrams. Coming up, many lawmakers, advocates, and experts are reflecting on the Dobbs decision handed down a year ago. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Saturday marks the first anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which allowed states like Mississippi to restrict abortion access. Through a series of audio vignettes, the Gulf States newsroom and producer Kobe Vance explore what lawmakers, advocates, and experts say about the decision. Andy Gibson is Mississippi's current agriculture commissioner and previously served in the state legislature. He was instrumental in getting the 15-week abortion ban passed, which would later be challenged in courts and ultimately end in the Dobbs decision. Well, I think uh, the moment that Roe was overturned and the moment that abortion, as we knew it, uh, ended in Mississippi, uh, it, it gave us a pivotal moment. How do we uh, put in place 
policies that will promote the embracing of life and the care for children. And, and the good news is we already had in place a network of uh, centers for pregnancy choices across Mississippi. So the state uh, decided to ask the question, what can we do to support this, the work of these nonprofits in the form of tax incentives and so forth? Because we know we can't just say we're pro-life uh, and be against abortion. We've got to be pro-life in the sense that we do embrace and we want to support and have that network of support for our moms and for babies uh, across Mississippi. Diane Dursis was the owner of the Jackson Women's Health Clinic, which was commonly referred to as the Pink House. It was the only clinic in Mississippi offering abortion services. Her clinic was the plaintiff in the Dobbs decision, and they were forced to close their doors when a trigger law enacted later that year. I had pretty much thought this through, and even though I knew it was going to happen, when it happened, it was absolutely unbelievable, I guess. You know, it's like we only could imagine what it meant, but I don't think any of us imagined how bad it was going to get and how much worse it can and will get. It was surprising how many, and even to this day, how many people do not know that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Or, in fact, what Roe v. Wade was. But, you know, that's part of it. I mean, for the people that are using these services, the everyday men and women, you know, why would they think about that? Life goes on for them, and it's a totally different thing, and no one ever thinks they're going to need this service. I mean, that's the last thing on your mind, you know? Dorinda Hancock spent much of her time as a volunteer helping women get in and out of the Jackson Women's Health Clinic before it was closed. It's just like everyone accepts that's just the way it is now. How can you just be so passive when not only are your rights at stake, in so many instances your life is at stake? What I don't get is, I don't get any of it, but particularly all these women that are having miscarriages or, you know, fetal anomalies, these are women out there with wanted pregnancies that have to be terminated to save their lives. And we're just accepting that too. There's all kinds of chatter out there, you know, on Facebook, on the interwebs, whatever you want to call it, Twitter, um, you know, oh, I'm pro-choice, oh, I support, oh, we're not going back. I hate that line. We're already back. I mean, the antis have won, <laughs> you know. Everybody says they're going to push back, but it's just on the it's just on social media. I mean, who is actually on the ground up against these people? Attorney Rob McDuff is a longtime civil rights lawyer in Mississippi. He's with the Mississippi Center for Justice and often serves as the go-to attorney for abortion rights groups. The real victims in this tragedy are the future patients of the clinic who no longer have a right under the law to make their own decisions about whether and when to have children. And they no longer have a clinic where they can uh, get this important part of, of medical care. And so 
I'm sad that, that, that I'm not able to represent clinics because the clinics have been abolished, but really the people who have suffered the most are the women in Mississippi who can't make this choice, the people who worked in the clinics and worked so hard to support women in that position who were making this difficult decision, but were able to at least make it themselves and not be told by the state that they had to bear children against their will. And so that's, that's where, the, where the, real, the real tragedy is. Jameson Taylor was another key figure in Mississippi's anti-abortion movement. He's with the Center for Public Policy, a conservative think tank. Personally, in the aftermath of Rose Mersel, I've been surprised to learn that pro-lifers are not at all united on other issues. And that's to say that, for instance, some pro-lifers are not socially conservative in other ways. Some of them are not fiscally conservative. In fact, uh, the opposite. Uh, Some don't care about politics at all if the battle's not about life. And so as I kind of look at the conservative movement, you know, I've talked about this idea, this kind of quest for identity in our modern culture. But as I look at the conservative movement, my conclusion is that the pro-life movement has served as a kind of duct tape, keeping together a very diverse collection of conservative voices and opinions. And with the Dobbs decision, I think to some extent, that duct tape has been ripped off so that it's now more difficult to perceive what conservatism is in practice. Michelle Colon is a self-proclaimed abortion freedom fighter and leader of the reproductive health advocacy group, Shiro. I'm still doing what I do. I'm still um, working um, and defying this in, in, in regards to helping pregnant Mississippians seeking abortion health care uh, access. Um, I'm helping them navigate the system, and that means if I have to drive them myself, that means if contributing to the procedure, um, contributing and providing practical support such as gas, lodging, food, things like that. And I continue to fundraise not only in Mississippi and throughout the South, but also um, like for Indigenous women out in Arizona and New Mexico. Um, you know, it, the work the work continues because just like we we know and, we, and we've said, this law was not going to stop the need for you know abortion. It just created another barrier. This segment was possible because of the Gulf States Newsroom, a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Kobe Vance, MPB News. Coming up, the mental health field has changed drastically since a Mississippi man was the first person to be diagnosed with autism in 1938. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Fix It 101 is a fun podcast with lots of home improvement information. Even if that's not your bag, all of the episodes are archived online. So if the mood strikes you or if the need motivates you, you can search your project. And yes, there is a Fix It 101 podcast for that. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. The work week ends with local programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, all aspects of gardening are discussed on the Gestalt Gardener. Next Stop Mississippi highlights events taking place around the state at 10. 
At 11, explore women's health on Southern Remedy for Women. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi native Donald Triplett, the first person ever diagnosed with autism, died last week. He was 89. Triplett's diagnosis in 1938 sparked decades of research into autism spectrum disorder. He would go on to attend Millsaps College, later returning to his home in Forest to work at a bank and be close to his family. We speak with Mark Yeager, Executive Director of Team Autism. That stands for Together Enhancing Autism Awareness in Mississippi. He says Triplett helped shape the future of mental health research. When he was diagnosed, obviously being the first person in the world diagnosed, the field was very, very young, and uh, what we knew about autism was just emerging. A physician at um, at Johns Hopkins, uh, Dr. Leo Canner, was the physician that came up with the criteria based on other patients that he saw. However, he never diagnosed anybody with the, what well, at that time there was a, a couple other names, a pervasive developmental disorder and infantile autism. And so they were beginning to, de- to de- kind of define the criteria for that. Donald was a young fellow. He, he, he had very limited language. He was very withdrawn and he was uh, also uh, very aloof when it, when it came to interacting with other people. His family, fortunately enough, had the resources to get him to Dr. Canner, and from that came the definitive diagnosis. Uh, throughout his life, he was uh, able to accomplish all sorts of things. He graduated from college. Uh, he held down a job. He wasn't antisocial. It's just that he wasn't social, if that makes any sense. Uh, if you sat down to talk to him, he would talk to you. And But at the same time, he preferred to do things by his own way and by himself. The, you know, autism is, there is no cure for it, and it is a lifelong disability. And so his his life is sort of an example of how someone can have autism that even affects their ability to even develop language as a young child, but can still, through a lot of work and a lot of dedication, can, can have a very fulfilling life. Was he used as an example for autism in studying and researching the field? You know, there, there was limited um the family really didn't want to um, make it more like he was exploited in any way. There is a, a book that was written about him later in life. As a matter of fact, they, they came to Mississippi and released the book, and there's been a documentary that told his story. But as far as researching goes, uh, you know, the, at Johns Hopkins, of course, he was part of the the initial defining type of research to sort of hone down the criteria. And at that time, it was really felt like possibility was high that only boys – had autism, and not too long into it, uh, we began to see girls were also diagnosed with it. But his life, as it was summed, as he got later on in uh, in, in years, he uh, he stood as an example of what can be accomplished, and uh, despite some of the obstacles that he faced as a young child. After he was diagnosed, did it change how the field was studied in any way? Well, it gave it some definition, and I think that's one of the things that the that the field needed. So really and truly, his diagnosis really becomes a landmark in the beginning of the of the field in and of itself. And even though it's evolved over the years, the criteria that was used to diagnose Donald has persisted over the years. Now there is some there are some changes with some of it as we know a little bit more about 
what we call concomitant conditions, so something that a person with autism may have along with being autistic. Uh, we've learned more about those things, but the criteria that still defines autism itself has persisted all these years. And so um, people like Donald and others that, that came after him diagnostically, they've kind of become the beam that we followed to make sure we stay true to what Dr. Canner was really looking at. I, I think that really and truly it, it becomes the landmark of where we define a field that has persisted to the day. Are we seeing more children with autism now, or is it that there's a better understanding of what autism is? You know, that's a complicated question, but an excellent question, because um, there's, not a, there's not a good answer to it. There's no doubt that we are seeing more cases of autism. There may be a number of things that contribute to that. The, the most basic one is, is there probably are more cases of autism just in and of itself. However, we also know more about autism, and so as the as that field has defined itself over, I, I've been in in the autism field now for you know pushing 40 years, and I've seen it evolve quite a bit about how we how we understand uh, different things about autistic people. And one of the benefits we've had is autistic people now can tell us about their experiences. When you think about it, individuals like Donald. As they've grown, they remember their experiences, and so they've shared those with us. So I think there's, a, there's more awareness. There's more understanding of things that we might have in past days might would have called intellectual disability. And, in, in fact, it, it wasn't an intellectual disability. It was autism. And so we've seen some people clear up diagnosis, which means that the autism diagnosis has become more prevalent than it, than it was even, gosh, even 15 years ago. The other part of it is is that as we begin to be more aware of it, then there's more professionals out there that are given the diagnosis as the primary diagnosis, and that's really changed significantly in the last 10 to 15 years. Mark Yeager is with TEAM. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier.